welcome to episode 128 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Tanya Barham, CEO and founder at Community Energy Labs, offering modern AI-powered clean building control solutions that make smart energy management and decarbonization accessible and affordable for community building owners, enabling a reduction in carbon emissions and saving money and time, ultimately accelerating decarbonization and slowing climate change. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Tanya transforms spirit, innovation, and vision into concrete action through democratic and transparent leadership. She has 20 years' experience as an innovator, technical architect and manager, team builder, leader, and utility nerd. Whether it's a team, product, organization, or solution architecture, she builds stuff to last and has a legacy of work that endures. And as a reminder, please vote, vote, vote with our climate future in mind. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I am here with Tanya Barham, CEO and founder at Community Energy Labs. Tanya, welcome to The Climate Champions. That's awesome. Awesome to be here, Lee. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was amazed at how many people we have that overlap and how many companies, because I noticed I, I like judge for scene and I judge for Cal Testbed and you've won them all. <laughs> And we should say to the audience that we did not know each other prior to those wins. So. No, I only found that out recently. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. If you were part of those review committees. Yeah, I just learned that today, too, that we had that connection. But I will say some other connections that we had that really cracked me up are the obviously the smart grid, you know, the ITOT at utilities that people don't know it. But now that smart grids here, you know, all the all of us who came in through. Well, I started in OT, I will say that, but I was always doing like computerized maintenance management systems on the OT side. So I always had that sort of like secret love for the IT piece. But, you know, people don't realize like IT is like gets no respect from OT in the utilities. I actually ran the technology side of that for SDG and SoCal Gas operating side and then the actual energy side. So I was on both sides as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. It's funny to meet people who have done both and know what that's like, that tension is like inside the utility. And then also transactive energy nerds. Like a lot of people don't know that my co-founder and I, you know, Jennifer and I, that was how we met through the NIST transactive energy challenge where she was a participant. And so, you know, we try to keep that. It's sort of like, you know, you don't want to tell all your normie friends that you have your like imaginary friends. <laughs> we we don't it's not like we advertise that we came up through transactive energy, but it's always fun to meet somebody else who was, you know, kind of playing in that realm as well, who believes in the the power of transactive energy. Yeah, you were also on the Gridwise Architecture Council, is that mm -hmm. correct? And I'm part yeah. of Gridwise Alliance as well. Turning it a little bit to climate change, can you talk about your motivating moment when you decided you wanted to make a difference? Oh, I mean, I'm a seven up. 
you know, like I'm a true believer. I was raised by hippies. They were married in a Unitarian church. You know, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, which had this really liberal, crunchy vibe. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Midwest is the home of the co-op in the United States. So cooperative healthcare, cooperative groceries, cooperative banks, cooperative everything, cooperative business models. And part of that is this really agrarian lifestyle where people relied on each other for survival in you know, potentially harsh conditions, but also really fertile ground for agriculture, as we know. I always had a really strong relationship to conservation in particular. When I was a kid, like I was right on that recycling and that energy conservation. I have like pictures. I know that everybody these days is like, there's this whole resurgence of nuclear and those people are probably going to send hate to your inbox. But I'm a kid. I got my no nuke shirt on. I rode my bicycle everywhere. Didn't even own a car until my child was four years old. That's not to say I didn't drive growing up, but I personally didn't. So I can't point to you any particular time around climate. Like I have always been a true believer. My kid cloth diapers, cloth napkins. I've always tried to do my best to be conscientious about the impact that I'm having on the environment. So got a microgrid at my house. What drives you now? more than even before? Oh, I think the opportunity to bring other people along. You know, I think there's more awareness and it's so fun. I also love community. So, you know, coming from a cooperative, ecological type background, I also really believe in the power of community and cooperation. You know, I lived in Denmark and Scandinavia where my ancestors are from. And Denmark is one of the most cooperative oriented societies or collectivist type societies I've ever experienced. And I love that. I think it can be hard to replicate that in the United States context, just there's so much pressure to be otherwise. But I like working with other people. I like leading teams. I like facilitating. I like driving forward. And I like identifying people who are equally driven. So I think for me, what motivates me now is other people are on board. And I'm like, cool, welcome to the party. Let's have a good time, you know, or let's work hard. You know, we can do this. I believe humanity can turn it around. I mean, we do love to wait until things are right at the brink, and I hope we don't get there. You know, I think about having seen the ozone hole, for example. I remember having a lot of anxiety about that when I was younger. I also remember a time in my life where people were very worried about food scarcity and overpopulation. And so these are some things, environmental crises that, you know, growing up really impacted the way that I felt. And I saw that we probably waited too long but we did find solutions. And so I believe that we can do this and I'm excited that other people are finally on board. I agree with you. It is wonderful that the movement that needs to pick up steam is finally seeing some urgency. Mm -hmm. When you meet people that don't get it yet, how do you convince them otherwise? Oh, you don't. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> no. You know, it's funny because I took a detour Back in the early 2000s, I worked for Portland Energy Conservation, Inc. I had just come off doing this really cool program called the Solar for Our Schools program in 2002 for Bonneville Environmental Foundation. We still work with that program where we were introducing the idea of grid-tied solar inverters, and we knew that we needed to do market transformation, and I felt that schools would be a really great place to do demonstrations and to really build that market transformation, work with building inspectors, work with installers, work with the trades, work with teachers. You know, people didn't call it STEM back then, but science teachers, and sort of build that enthusiasm. So I was sort of coming off of that program, you know, feeling really great about the progress we'd made both in maturing grid-type solar inverter technology and that process, as well as the sort of market transformation education pieces. 
And I went straight from that into building a software platform for Portland Energy Conservation Inc. that managed heating, ventilation, and air conditioning units for Southern California Edison. And it was just like, I burnt myself out. It was really my first kind of like taste of being an entrepreneur because it was like starting an idea from nothing. The difference being, of course, I had $7 million in the support of an established organization, which means a lot. But I was so burnt out that I left and I started a wellness company and I ran that for 10 years. And I learned so much about how to change people's habits. And so back to your question, you don't. People, if they feel any pressure, like, I mean, we're seeing this politically. If you push even the tiniest bit, like if you insinuate, they just pick that up and push back, you know, to every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so if your energy is like moving toward them, like I'm trying to push you or pull you toward me, they will resist in equal proportion to what you're putting out there. And I just saw that over and over again. So now I'm totally 100% about finding my coalition of the willing. And, you know, it's that Margaret Mead quote about a small group of committed individuals. And that's how you make change. You find a group of people who want to do it. They want to push hard. And you just focus 110% of your energy on moving forward with them. And the rest of those folks will either catch up or they won't. But I'm not worried about changing people's minds. That's a refreshing attitude. What do you do at Community Energy Labs now to help mitigate climate change? Well, we have a building technology that bridges a gap with a really underserved segment of the building community. So right now in the United States, buildings are responsible for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. So that dwarfs what is coming from vehicles, for example, and 70% of those emissions are from electricity use. And then there's an additional increment that's from the burning of direct combustion of fossil fuels in buildings propane, gas, mostly to heat water and air. So, okay, we can take care of that 10% by electrifying everything, right? Let's electrify everything in buildings. Let's use heat pumps for water, heat, and heating and cooling. Let's use batteries and solar instead of diesel gensets. Let's use electric vehicles instead of cars. And that's all cool and great. And then we say, okay, and then let's clean up the grid. And those two things will meet in the middle, right? And then we have a perfectly clean built environment, except for that, like that bridge is like, so the thing that bridges that gap is building controls, particularly for, you know, but for all it's controls and communications layers, you need to have IT layers in between those two sides of the bridge. And that's not too difficult for like a residential home where you've got one or two heating and cooling zones. You can use your little nest thermostat, you know, it can try to keep you comfortable while also listening to the grid. But once you start increasing the complexity of the operations in a building and the types of equipment that are being used, it becomes far more complex. So that's where controls come in. And, and you know, controls, buildings are everywhere, right? Are you in a building? Is it using energy? I mean, it's a huge market and there's a lot of heterogeneity. And so, you know, you do have controls out there. There are building automation systems that work really well for, again, residential or like class A office buildings where they can build a bespoke, you know, if you're Google or Adobe, like you can build some bespoke software. It's going to save you so much. It's going to help your environmental sustainability. You're already making a 90% profit. So you're good. Who cares about that? $300,000. Or maybe you have a class A building where you can keep just charging tenants more and more and more so you can recoup that investment. But there's like 90%, I think it's 87%. I don't know if you know the James Dice podcast. 
he has a report that says 87% of that commercial building sector does not have controls. And Project Drawdown estimates that if that sector were to adopt controls over the next 30 years, we could reduce 7 to 11 gigatons of carbon emissions. That's a lot. So we're in that space. We're trying to increase the affordability and simplicity to implement building controls for small building owners. And right now we primarily focus on K through 12 schools and higher ed, as well as the government municipal sector. I saw that you started in 2019. And then of course the pandemic hit. How did that affect you? Well, I did. I mean, I will say in 2019, I paid somebody to develop a logo. <laughs> but I don't know when it's really starting. I did. I took out the LLC, but I really wasn't doing anything. I was still working. I was consulting. I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to start a business or not. So I had been working at Portland Energy Conservation, Inc. We had been working on virtual power plants, microgrids. We won a Smart Electric Power Alliance Visionary of the Year Award for our collaborations with communities on energy technology and the deployment of energy technology, specifically microgrids and virtual power plants. So there was a big changeover on the board. The board decided they wanted to go a different direction strategically and really stay focused on policy in Oregon. And, you know, we had been moving in a really national direction, maybe even international direction and focusing very much on tech. So there was a mismatch there. And so, you know, I made a negotiation with the board that I would inherit the intellectual property that we had developed and I could keep that. However, I was under a non-compete. That was in 2019. So I took a job actually at 2019 for Portland General Electric managing. I was the manager of the IT side of their virtual power plants. So thinking about how to knit together all of these distributed resources into a virtual power plant that could be dispatched from our merchant operations control room. I had a lot of experience on the program, energy efficiency, solar side. So the program and customer side at utilities, and I'd had experience in the plants early on in my career and in T&D, but I haven't spent a lot of time in merchant operations, you know, like the balancing authority or the operating room for the plant from that perspective, but never in the middle. So it was really interesting to look at the attributes that they want that were dispatchable from that perspective and see really what drove, you know, so again, virtual power plants, cool, right? Like the utility was like, yeah, we've got 70 megawatts of demand response, but only 30 megawatts would show up if you tried to dispatch it. And how much of that did they count even? Did they count 30? When I really started digging into like, what is this 30? Like opening up the hood, right? It was in some cases, it was like industrial demand response. It was literally like you send out a text message. Somebody toodles up from their desk or their cell phone, opens a window and it's like, hey, Bob, turn off the rock chipper. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that is not okay. And so the more I started looking at this, the more freaked out I got about this idea of like, you know, demand response or virtual power plants cannot be competitive with a hydro or even a coal plant if they can't really be dispatchable. And they can't be dispatchable unless they're automated and at a price that is easy and effortless for customers to adopt. And if they understand how to stop customers from overriding. So I really started to realize like, you know, this utility stuff can work itself out. But on the customer side, they have to understand the value proposition and you need to solve some kind of a value proposition for them. And then 
just have the utility be able to figure out how to influence that decision. And so I, that was when I got really interested in the customer side. And in 2020, I then participated in a hackathon called the Grid Shift Hackathon through Silicon Valley Clean Energy. We just like barely missed it. We were, they were like, we'd like this honorable runner up. You're number four. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, number four doesn't count. We don't get a prize for number four. You know, we did this really funny demo, which is still up on our website. We started this interview where, you know, we're using data from the KISO to show how you could try to better match consumption with renewable energy. And it got me curious, like, do customers care about this? So then I got into Clean Tech Open in 2020, and it was just a gal in her slide deck. And I got an NSF from Washington State University, a little tiny NSF grant to do customer validation and talk to about a hundred customers throughout the whole West coast. And I think what I really found was there were some pain points that they had that if utilities could speak to the customer's needs, you could make virtual power plants and demand response much more stable and valuable to the utility and to the customer. And so that was what got me going. So the pandemic was your original question. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it didn't stop you at all. <laughs> no, uh, it was great because I was mostly doing customer validation. So I just, everybody was used to Zooming and calling. And so like getting a hundred interviews was gold. It was valuable. It really got interesting for me. And it showed me like, whoa, this brings together everything I love. Solar photovoltaic and building side behind the meter DERs, HVAC. I had done an HVAC software program for Southern California Edison, California. I love the California market. I just think it's interesting. They're always doing interesting stuff and they have a lot of problems that you can help them solve because of the complexity of their energy systems and grid. Schools. So schools came up a lot as someone that had particular problems that I really understood and where there was a lot of value that we could provide in terms of while we're, while we're learning ourselves about our tech building curriculum that their teachers can use and learning opportunities for their students. So I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? This is <laughs> awesome. And so then it became really about figuring out the business model, following up those early customer validations with like technical feasibility studies. So applied for a bunch of Department of Energy dollars, California Energy Commission, Washington Department of Commerce, the United States Department of Agriculture, and won a bunch of those small business innovation research grants and other research and development grants and started to prove out we've been, you know, those are in various stages. It's a complex technology, but really proving out the technical feasibility of a lot of the different aspects and making sure like, is it possible for us to actually do this technically? And the answer has been yes, but hard. So now we're doing tons of demonstrations and collaborations with school districts and utilities across the country to see if that go-to-market strategy can be very scalable once you start putting the pressure of actual implementations in the real world. So technically, all of it's feasible, none of it's easy, and we're just trying to sort of simplify that process and standardize and replicate and turn the crank on what we're doing. But, you know, here we are now, it's 2022. So the, no, the pandemic did not slow us down. If anything, I think it helped because I didn't have to travel so much, and now I'm having to travel again. It sounds like you won a lot of awards What's the biggest setback you had to overcome? Before becoming an entrepreneur again this time, there was something about me, I think, being assigned the gender of female at birth and just sort of that expectation that it is unseemly for a woman to say, I love to win. You look at Michael Jordan and Tommy Caldwell and they just say it, you know, they just say it like I want to be the best. 
I want to win. And if people who are working with me don't want to be the best and don't want to win, get out. You know, I mean, they say it in their own ways, but they say it. And I realized like, hey, I have the drive. I have the level of energy. I have the aptitude to do this. And this time around, I'm going to own it. And I'm going to say what other leaders say all the time, which is I'm not going to do anything by halves. Okay. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And so the winning it's nice because it's a validation that when I go in for an award, I'm not half-assing it. I'm not just slapping something together. Like I go in there and I'm like, this is going to be the best. It must be the best. And these awards are hard. Like they have three technical reviewers, commercial reviewers. They are like in there with a speculum, you know, <laughs> like, and, and I don't care that they are. I like it. It really pushes me to excel and to be excellent and to be better. So in that sense, I just want to say I'm so grateful for the opportunity to like participate in these and to have that part of my personality that I was born with get a chance to be expressed, right? So I've never used a speculum, but <laughs> I've been part of those reviews. And uh, <laughs> congratulations. You know, right? They're tough. You're just like, wow, what else do you want? I'm blood type AB. I'm like, they ask for a lot. So you were going to talk about setbacks, but instead you told everybody oh, about well, all the awards you won. Here's the setbacks <laughs> though, but it's related. When we put together our sort of like hiring and onboarding plan, it was me and my co-founder. It was a gal in her slide deck and then it was two gals. And then the next thing you know, we went from 250,000 in revenue in a year to over 3 million. And the setbacks are that that level of intensity and just like overwhelm and growing from two people to six people, and then from six people to 10 people in a span of like three months is a lot. And the pandemic has done a number on people. People are struggling. They're struggling to focus. They're struggling to prioritize. They're struggling to settle themselves down. And to be excellent, you need to be focused. You need to be able to bring 100% of yourself. You can't be checking emails at seven and calling that work. Like, you know what? When you're here at work, you need to be 110% and then turn off your dang computer at five. I don't want to see an email from you at 6.30 p.m. Because you need to show up tomorrow and really bring that focus. And something happened to a lot of people during the pandemic where they are burnt out and they need a break. And they also want to be paid more. <laughs> so, you know, I think that has been, I wouldn't call it a setback as much as it's been really hard. It's been really hard. It's be careful what you ask for because you might get it. If you get it, you got to live up to it. And But it sounds like you're doing that. Well, but it's hard, you know, it's always messier behind the sampler. And so, you know, I am a person who I don't ask people to do stuff that I don't expect for myself. But I also recognize that the level of energy and drive that I have, it's bizarrely high. Like it is not a normal amount of energy, intensity and drive. And so it's hard to calibrate sometimes to what you can realistically expect. Because other people just aren't born with that level of energy. That's not like that's just a difference in our brains. It's not like a moral failing of me or a moral failing of them. So I think the challenge is at a time when people are very fragmented, at a time when they're feeling really disconnected, at a time when they're feeling emotionally worn out, sort of calibrating leadership and culture in an organization 
so that you can do 10x more work in a year with people who are not at 110%. They're at 70% right now. So not wanting to burn people out, not wanting to create a toxic environment, but also being like, we have to have a high level of drive. We have to have a high level of excellence. We do have a lot of work to do. So that's been a humongous challenge. And I've done virtual teams since 2004. And team has never been the hard part for me on doing a startup. And this time, my team is awesome, though, I will say, like, they are great, but just making sure that we're like, constantly checking in on people's wellness, their mental health is, frankly, the biggest challenge. Balance has always been difficult, always. But now more than ever, I think that's true. I think you could be so much more successful if somehow you can maintain balance. It's like you can lead a horse to water, but people are making choices in their own lives. And I'm not going to be one of those people where, I mean, you do as a friend of mine who works for, I can't say which one it is, but it's like a brand name tech company. And she's always like, this place is a cult, man. <laughs> and there is kind of like, you know, that there's that sort of repetition to culture so that everyone's aligned and they all have the same, you know, expectations and you've all kind of drank the Kool-Aid, but you can repeat that and you can create that space. And in the past, that's really kind of all I needed to do. You bring in excellent people. They're very smart. They're very like finely calibrated to the sort of winds of change. You set the expectations high, you put metrics, and they will rise to meet those expectations. And you emphasize balance. You emphasize the need for balance. Like, hey, if you're not up for it, take the day off. Okay. Like, don't, don't come in and do a half-assed job for nine hours. Like, take the day off so that you can come in tomorrow and do a great job, or you can come in next week and do a great job. But people just can't stop themselves from doom scrolling, from getting on Instagram and getting all fired up about the news. There's so much of it now that like, I have no control over, but they're bringing it to work, you know? And so it is, that's sort of the challenge. Like you said, balance has always been hard and there's, I can set up, I can communicate those things about my culture. I can set up systems to ensure that it's not toxic, but you can lead that horse to water. You cannot force them to drink. And I'm just seeing people bringing a lot more baggage with them into the workplace. Yeah, you can't force people to believe in climate change by hitting them over the head with it. With mm -hmm. balance, you can give them room, but also you can't give it to them. It's something people no. have to find. That's 100%. And, and, you know, and having just some grace for that. For me, the challenge is also, again, recognizing that not everybody has the same level of energy and drive. And so trying to calibrate my own expectations to like what's realistic and what really is a necessity. So that's, that's been hard. It's been hard. Yeah. Tell me about the success that you're most proud of. Personally, I am a parent and my kid is awesome. I don't think I actually had anything to do with that, but I do feel really proud of that kid. Like what a kid. And just like such a little crusher. And we had such a great relationship and had such a good time during the pandemic. And like, I'm very lucky to have a kid that is not struggling a ton because I can work on this business. That's my other baby. And then in this business, I'm really proud. You know, it's always a double-edged sword. Like the thing that is that you're the wor most worried about is the thing that you're also the most proud of. I'm really proud of the team. I've got such an amazing team. And again, it was just a gal in our slide deck before. And now it's not just me. Like we have a software machine learning team that has four full-time folks. And then of course we have outsourced individuals. We've got user experience designer, customer success, operations folks, project managers. We've got this amazing building engineer. She's so amazing. 
And just like these people are awesome. And I'm proud to have attracted and to know them. I'm proud and humbled that they're willing to work with me every day, even though sometimes I'm grouchy and I push people. And I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of and that we're working for something really good. Oh God. And our customers, our customers are so awesome. We are working with some of the coolest utilities and we just have so much fun. Like people who think working hard and challenging problems are fun. I don't care what you're working on, whether it's climate or like whether you're a toilet paper manufacturing company. If you have people who are your customers, your employees, your investors, I love our investors too, who just like want to do good things, but they also like solving hard problems. It just makes life delightful. And so our investors are wonderful. We have early seed stage investors, Portland Seed Fund, and a number of entrepreneurs, primarily from the Portland and Pacific Northwest, like Virtue Lab invested, Steve Marsh from the Archivist. And they're just like such great collaborators, such good helpers, such good friends to us, helping us eliminate obstacles, you know, helping me as an entrepreneur get better, challenging me, supporting me. They always just seem to know the right thing to do. So I guess what I'm most proud of is the customers, the investors, and the team that we have. And just like, what a fun problem we've picked and how driven and motivated we are to do it. Like that's, that's just too much good times. Like I want this to be the last. Somebody said the other day, I was on this panel and they're like, I'm a three-time entrepreneur and this is my third company and it probably won't be my last. And I'm like, this is my third company and it damn well better be my last. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last company I want to work for. Thank God that it's one where there's a problem that I love and I'm in love with. There are customers that I love and I'm in love with. And we've just got like, right now the crew is just, it's a good crew. That is fantastic. It is mm -hmm. almost always all about the people, all about yeah. the team. That's what makes life fantastic is the right people. <laughs> Even your kid is the right people. Oh my gosh, I just got so lucky. Congratulations. Well, you've got a couple yourself. You've got to tell me like what your kids are like. What's their vibe? They are both amazing. Yes. But they're both amazing. They're both amazing, amazing people. Isn't it great when you're just like, I actually like you. I don't just love you. I really like you. <laughs> it is. Okay, now I've got, got to change back to the podcast stuff. Um, okay, sorry. I just like, I <laughs> no. love talking to people about their kids. You know what? That's another great thing about not necessarily being male identified. And you know, like now I'm actually starting to get more into the sports metaphors. But when I first joined the workforce, I'm like, oh my God, how many metaphors do I have to listen to about baseball? Because I have no idea what any of you people are talking about or golf or like football. And I would just be like, <laughs> you know, I'm the only woman in the room with this utility thing. And I'm just like, here's another war or sports analogy. And now I'm just like, now it's so hilarious because I've got these super smart young men and senior older men, many of whom though are parents, so they get it. And I'm constantly using birth and parenting metaphors. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I got this like 23-year-olds looking at me like, huh? You know, what are you talking about? But we're just like, you know how it's like when you parent a toddler and they're looking at me the same way that I looked at all the guys who were like, you know, trying to serve up baseball metaphors to me when I first started working. And I'm like, am I supposed to be getting this? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. When you look at the world 10, 20, 30 years from now, what do you think the future is going to look like? I have a vision for how I want things to be and how I think things should be. 
And I need to get really clear on that so that I can lead people or convince people or seduce people or encourage people to take that journey with me because I'm going to make it happen. For me, it's all just about something that actually has to happen. So I can't look at the whole future and know, but for me, I envision specific people that I know that are facilities managers who are literally trying to manage energy by manually programming hundreds of thermostats in their buildings. Or if they have a building automation system, they're sitting at like a beige computer in a windowless mechanical closet that's like 125 degrees. And they're like firing up that old baby and getting their Windows 95 looking software going, you know? And I'm just like, no, they're going to have their phone. They're going to just be monitoring. And the building is driving itself. It's a self-driving building and it's clean. Little kids are not breathing in diesel fumes from their buses, being powered by the sun. It's being powered by water. Okay, you nuclear heads, sure, fine. It's being powered by nuclear. Uh, It's being powered by wind. Kids aren't like breathing in diesel fumes. We're not combusting fossil fuels and buildings to warm and cool ourselves. So what I picture is very specific. I picture letting people, those facilities folks, those janitors, instead of fussing with thermostats, giving them time to, I think, I'm thinking of one guy right now at Newport Mesa School District. His name's Jimmy. He's the custodian. And he, he does these games with the kids to get them to recycle. So Jimmy's doing that. Jimmy's working on making a beautiful, safe, healthy place for our kids to grow up and learn. And that's what he gets to spend his time on instead of doing a bunch of stuff that barely makes a dent and just wastes his time and makes him frustrated. And so a frictionless experience for our unsung heroes of building maintenance so that our kids can learn, our elders can be comfortable. And like, I can just see that so clearly. So it's not like the huge, huge, big picture, but it's very personal and emotional for me because I, you know, I can just feel that. So when I look at the future, that's my little piece that I can help with. And that's what I see. And that's what I'm making happen. Can you give advice about how people could help to mitigate climate change? So much of carbon emissions stem from the way that we use energy. So I think just building more awareness. You know, my co-founder and I have a joke about traditional VC-backed software. And, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a tech head. I love tech. I use tech. We call it rabbitshoes.com. So the traditional like venture capital models are like, hey, rabbits, third most popular pet in the US, got big feet, they need shoes, rabbitshoes.com. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think rather than preaching, rather than scolding, you know, but that seems fun, right? The stuff that wins is the stuff that's fun and for people to be easy to adopt. So I think for those of us who are already in the choir, Thinking about how to make this stuff cool and fun. I just came off of a two-day, eight-hour workshop with SCE. And it's not just us preaching at people or moralizing about climate change. It's really finding those intersections that are participatory. So out of those eight hours, I'd say six solid hours are interactive exercises that are really to get people connected and stimulated and having fun. And they would come out of those exercises and be like, that was such a good time, but they were actually learning. So what they were learning about was how activities typically require appliances or machines, how those machines use energy and how that energy comes from somewhere, you know, a power plant that is run by coal or gas or wind or, but we don't just lecture to people about it. We engage them. And so 
I would challenge everyone to try to think about how to make climate fun, solving climate change, thinking about energy use in particular, and not moralizing, but really thinking about how to engage people, making it a game. So also making it serious. But I think that's the thing that I'm really trying to do is get people interested, engaged and having fun thinking about energy and energy use. Do you have any questions for me? I remember those days that you were talking about at Sempra when Sempra was like winning all the awards. And now, of course, SoCal Gas and SDG&E are doing their own things. Are you still in touch with your old buddies? And like, why are they not figuring out, you know, what's going to happen to these utilities that haven't figured out that the end is nigh for their business model? What do you think? Unfortunately, I think that most businesses are the same. They're driven by how they're measured, which is usually money. And they are looking for ways to maximize that dollar, even if it's not the best thing for humans and humanity, because that's just not how they're judged when they reach that place in business. And I think it's horrible. I wish businesses were judged in some other way. Yeah. And I think, I think for some companies that is the case. Unfortunately, the energy industry hasn't really made that journey in mass. Some have, but not enough. Well, when you still get your fingers in gas infrastructure. So they're trying things like, can they introduce hydrogen? Can they have biomethane? I think that they want that, but mostly they want to stay in business and continue to make money. Well, that's one thing consumers can do is put their money where their mouth is. You know, I really, the CCA is, that was what where we what we started following at PECI when you know before we won all those awards and stuff we were just looking at like what is driving this movement behind CCA and it was really just consumers wanting some autonomy and choosing you know that old model with the regulatory capture and the public utility commissions and the utility really determining for all of us what kind of the energy they're going to procure it was just really interesting to see those winds blow in a different direction and so fast, so rapidly. Yeah. All right. Hey, on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. You know, the future (laughs) of the earth, it's getting kind of tippy. You're really into climate change mitigation because you were born as a hippie. And because of that, you had very early participation. So you were early into recycling and conservation. Conservation and recycling, yes, it really struck a chord. Right now, you're just glad that others are on board. It just doesn't make sense when people don't believe. They just won't. Don't waste your time. So just don't. You believe that in order to reach our goal, each and every building needs to have control. Hey, there was this app that it was all based upon. Now you've won a lot of awards, but then you only finished fourth at the hackathon. (laughs) (laughs) You just keep going. It's amazing how you thrive. And that's because you have incredible energy and drive (laughs) of all the things you're proud of, of all the things you did. The number one thing that you love is your kid. 
The biggest part of your successful dream is having great people around you, customers and team. No matter how hard it is, you never feel like you're done. You're always going to strive to be number one because to be number one, you've got to have a lot of fun. When I asked about a vision, you didn't make up something you might see. Instead, you told me about how you wanted them to be. Hey, people out there, you're not going to scare them. It is time. You better listen and hear them. There's no reason that you have to fear them. They're going to rise up if you dare them. You're an amazing female CEO, an amazing CEO in general. Thank you, Tanya Barham. <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> wow. That was like both completely amazing and like the first time I ever did my pitch. <laughs> Tanya's advice, make it fun, is so very important. For me, great challenges, as difficult as they might be, are super fun. But everyone has their own drivers and passions. Great leaders are able to figure out how to motivate and make the people around them better. Seems like Tanya is hitting a grand slam. Uh, winning the war. Uh, is growing her company to have great values, have fun, and make a difference in the world. Like we hope for our children. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Tanya is certainly one of the most high-energy people I have ever talked to. From a fourth-place finish at a hackathon, to a girl and her slide deck, Tanya is well on her way to significantly helping to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.